going to jump into the teaching here this morning. We actually have a, lot of, have a lot of cool stuff that we're excited to just announce. We'll unravel this over the next uh, few weeks, actually. But uh, this teaching series that we've been in has been called Gospel Center in Matters of Race, Justice, and Humanity. And we've been attempting to really look at the broader cultural matters that are happening around us and really trying to make sure that we can link all of these things in, in, a, in a biblical fashion uh, because ultimately, at the end of the day, the narrative that we, uh, as followers of Jesus, uh, live by is not culture's narrative, but by a biblical narrative. So we'll be wrapping this up next week. So the message for the last that will conclude everything will be next week. We'll look at that, and I'll tell you more about that in two seconds. And then after that, we're going to be moving into the Advent season, which is a time of four weeks of just reflecting upon the birth of Jesus. Um, I can't think of any more important thing for us to do, especially in this season, to really, truly uh, remind ourselves, to restore ourselves into the ancient biblical narrative of who God is and what God has done for us than to spend some time to really reflect upon this. I'm excited about that. And then uh, as soon as that's done, we'll, we will begin at the beginning of the year a brand new teaching through a book series, which is kind of like my sweet spot. It's what I love to do. Um, I've mentioned this before. Our topicals are a little bit challenging for me, but there's occasions where we just need to do that. We need to pause and think about certain topics and subject matter and themes and ideas that are uh, currently occupying the, the, the brain space of, of humanity, right? And that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. And before we jump into the teaching here this morning, which if you guys would like, you can open up your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter uh, 10. That's what we'll be looking at here right now in just a moment. Luke chapter 10. It's probably one of the, arguably, the, the most famous of all of Jesus's uh, parables. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. We'll get into that in just a second. Um, a couple other things uh, just kind of preceding that before we jump in. Um, I, I wanted to just say real briefly uh, before we even proceed uh, a word about what I what I was thinking about. The phrase kind of came to my mind this morning, so I wrote it down. I'm just going to share it with you guys. Uh, a word about post-election anxiety and an invitation to neighborliness over nastiness. So that's not the title of this message. It's sort of a, an introduction, a freebie, if you would, right? You're welcome um, for us to just to consider and think about. But uh, first of all, a word about post-election anxiety. And the fact of the matter is I don't really have a whole lot of uh, opinions to share with you guys about what's happening in our world right now. I mean, I, let me restate that. I have a lot of opinions about what's happening, but I'm not going to share them because they're, they're, they're worthless to you whatsoever, and they will probably only greater, more greatly polarize our world around us, which, you know, it's, we're here for Jesus. We're here to worship Jesus. We're here to be united around Jesus. Um, but what I do want to think about with regard to post-election anxiety, I, I think that's a good way to identify or define where we're at right now, is regardless of what side of the fence that you voted or regardless of what candidate you had hoped or wished, uh, you know, would be in, uh, whether or not you are satisfied or dissatisfied or happy or not happy or angry or whatever. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that there's the, the opinions are all over the map on this. And so, again, without necessarily addressing those, what I would like for us to really think about is the net effect that I think a lot of this has had uh, upon uh, Western culture uh, in general and in your life in particular is anxiety, stress and worry and fear. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are happening in our world right now that are just uh, that leave us feeling as if there is uh, this milieu of chaos, milieu of chaos that we kind of find ourselves in. So um, I don't know if you're like me, but there's even been occasions where I've, I've stopped, you know, watching the news or even reading the headlines because 
uh, they just cause me anxiety. I don't know if you've gotten to that point as well, but, um, and, and it, it forces me to really ask the bigger question, now what? Now, now what? So I don't really have opinions to give you that are going to be of any value, but what I do have is uh, God's scripture, God's word, that hopefully will at least provide us a place to think about. So um, I want to read just real briefly uh, Psalm 31, just a, a couple passages in there, verse 9 and then 10. And the psalmist writes this subject uh, with regard to recognizing his life is uh, steeped in all sorts of forms of trauma and chaos and pain and hardship and difficulty. Um, if you read the, the whole psalm, it's basically one uh, complaint, if you would, after another. You know, like, uh, let me just read you verses 9 and 10. I'll, I'll, I'll finish, let the, the text do what the text does. Uh, verse 9 says this in Psalm 31. Have mercy on me, O Lord, uh, for I am in distress. Tears blur my eyes. My body and my soul are withering away. I'm dying from grief, but I'm trusting in you, O Lord. Saying, you are my God. And he ends with this little uh, statement. Um, in you, uh, or, or my future is in your hands. Or in you is my future. Um, and, I, and I love that because uh, throughout the rest of the psalm, he's just identifying all different forms and sorts of ways in which he is confronted by incredible soul agonizing trauma and stress and anxiety. Um, but what he does is he comes back, he circles back to the one thing that he knows for certain. And it's that Yahweh, God, is in control. And that in, in God is his future. Um, look, if, if, if in this culture right now we are placing our confidence and our hope in whatever candidate, I don't care, take your pick, or whatever political system, take your pick, it will fail you. It will let you down. It will be a source of incredible anxiety because, because these things can be shaken. God's kingdom cannot be shaken. And so what the psalmist is doing is he's assessing the landscape and realizing everything around me is shaking and turbulent and uh, prone to fracturing. Um, and yet God is, is my future. God is the one in whom I hope. So again, a word about post-election anxiety is, is for you to just think about what are you placing your confidence in? What are you placing your hope in? And then from that, um, an invitation to neighborliness over nastiness. Neighborliness over nastiness. Um, I, I think it's safe to say that what we are seeing for the most part um, in culture today is a dumpster fire, fire of just nastiness. People jumping online. It's one of the reasons why, honestly, like even social media, I took a three-month break from social, all social media for the most part over the summer, and I have not like fully re-engaged. Um, I've kind of dipped in periodically and just like, oh, this, this is toxic. I'm out you know, for a little bit and then dip myself back in a little bit. I'm not sure why I go, keep going back to that. It's like what the proverb says is a dog returns to its vomit. Like maybe that's what it's like. I don't know. Um, but the point of the matter is um, the, the, the idea is that we have these 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 places where they're just toxic. And so, um, and, and Christians aren't immune to this. I mean, in some cases, Christians can be one of, the, one of the worst because I think more should be expected out of a Christian's behavior and a response. And then when a Christian gets in there and they're just like toxic and angry and, you know, virulent and just all of this, there's that tendency of just like, ah, so much more should be expected of a father of Jesus. And yet instead there's just this nastiness coming out of every poor. And uh, my invitation to us as we begin to jump into scripture here today is to neighborliness over nastiness, especially within this post-election anxiety creating world in which we live in right now, that we would be a non-anxious presence in a world that's filled with anxiety. 
uh, neighbors, friends, people that you know that are just deeply troubled within their souls as to what's happening. Think about what it would look like if you and I were to live in such a way where our, our uh, loyalty is not to Caesar, right, or one party over another party or even, or even America over, over anything else, like, but to Jesus, King Jesus. What, what, if, what would it look like if our loyalty was ultimately to the kingdom of God? Now, that, I, th- I think actually that would make us even a better citizen, a, a better human being. Um, and so that's the summons for us to think about and to consider, uh, to live in a way that aligns with neighborliness over nastiness. And with that being said, I want to jump in now and I begin to read the passage that we'll be looking at here today. So again, uh, just by way of brief intro, that we have been looking at a variety of different themes over the past several weeks that tie into the larger, broader uh, narrative of our culture as well as of the Bible of gospel being centered in matters of race justice, and humanity. And so we've been looking at a variety of words and themes and concepts that are kind of uh, being used oftentimes in our culture. But at the same time, some of those definitions of terms that are attributed to these terms are not necessarily, not necessarily exactly how they translate within Scripture. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that we uh, don't uh, give ourselves over to a definition of certain words, like justice is one of those examples, that, that might be utilized within the culture at large, and yet it's a different form of justice. It's like what Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller described, is that there are competing forms of justice that, that are happening right now within culture. They're not all the same. So in other words, when your friend or your grandma or someone that's going to be coming up in this you know, couple of weeks of Thanksgiving, if we're all going to have Thanksgiving, is... Um, Someone might be like, social justice, I care about that. But that might not be the exact same thing as to what the Bible describes as far as justice. There may be some overlap, but it may not be the exact same thing. So again, for us, our loyalties as far as of Jesus is to Jesus and to the kingdom that he invites us to embody and to live out. And so with that being said, we've been looking at a variety of words. We looked at the word justice. Today we're going to be looking at the word uh, neighborliness and why this plays into the broader picture. Next week, you don't want to miss it, we'll be looking at the subject of, of power or power structures. It's, in fact, I would say that a lot of this kind of frames um, and undergirds a lot of what's happening within our culture today is a, is a misunderstanding as to what power is and how it's to be yielded and who has it and how does one use it if they do have it um, and what does abuse look like and how do we think about abuse of circumstances and situations and what, and, and what are the remedies to all of these things. Again, you'd be surprised. The Bible actually has a lot to say about power. And I'll just give you a brief little trailer because the Bible says something about God, that part of his characteristic is he's what? All-powerful. God has all power. So power is not a bad thing, right? Power is not a bad thing. Power can be yielded in such a way or wielded in such a way where it's destructive to the lives of other people. But God apparently has all of it. And when God uses his power, it's always to bring about his purposes in this world. So with that being said, I want to jump right in now to our scripture reading. I'm going to read kind of a little bit of a lengthy passage, but hopefully this story will all make sense to you as we read through it. Just put it within its context, and then we'll make some observations, and we'll kind of uh, move on into some time of communion together with us as a community. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 36, uh, begins this way. A lawyer stood up, and he put him to the test, Jesus, that is, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And then he answered. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then he said to him, you have answered correctly. Go do this and you will live. Verse 29. Then he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, 
uh, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and then beat him and then departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, uh, just as we read through this, think about there's various characters that are going to play into the story. So pay attention carefully to the characters. Uh, now by chance, a priest, religious leader, was going down that road. And when he came, he saw him and he passed by on the other side. Verse 32. So likewise, our Levite, who was basically a priest in training or a wannabe priest, you know, one who uh, had an aim of their life to one day be a priest or priestly duties. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place that he saw him, he passed also on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you need, uh, whatever more you need, uh, you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And then he said, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Father, right now, we ask you that you would just give our hearts understanding, open our eyes, uh, Lord, not only to what your word has to speak to us, but open our, our eyes to the ways in which our lives are incongruent with your word. Uh, Lord, give us hearts that are quick to repent and turn from our ways to turn to you. Because we know, God, in you is life. And so we ask you, Father, that you would help us to be agents of life, not agents of death. It's our default. Our default is to just become agents of death. We do nothing, we become agents of death. We do something in partnership and responsiveness to the initiation of the Holy Spirit, then we walk into a path that leads to life. So help us, God, now to uh, live according to life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we think about this passage here, um, as I was thinking about, I had a couple, uh, one where it describes um, neighborliness, next slide, um, uh, in terms of Thinking about this in a broader context, that neighborliness, I think, is sort of the summation of what it actually means to have uh, righteousness and justice and love. So, in other words, when righteousness and justice and love are kind of functioning together, what you end up having is neighborliness. Um, uh, I think we have a slide that's going to be coming up. Maybe it was... Oh, there we go. There we go. So neighborliness um, is when all this happens. And what I want us to think about, there's three different ways that you can put this and word it. So I'm going to just say it this way. Neighborliness is the coming together of righteousness, justice, and love to others. Or another way to think of it is when righteousness, justice, and love are quote-unquote working, it ultimately looks like neighborliness. Or here's another way to think about it. Uh, if we claim that righteousness, justice, and love are valuable. In other words, especially within our culture, we're all about like, you know, righteousness, justice, and love, these are values that our culture, for the most part, at least is claiming in word to be a value. Um, yet to display contempt to the other, I don't care who that other is, if you're, you know, very, very extreme on the left and you have contempt to those who are on the right, or if you are on the far, far right and you have contempt towards who, those who are on the left, um, and yes, I just said that, um, the fact of the matter is, that's a, it's an incongruency of the way of Jesus. And what God invites us to think about. So contempt, this idea that oftentimes tends to uh, create an other towards somebody else and then uh, demonize that other is 
is, is not to walk in righteousness, justice, and love. Uh, or, to put it another way, neighborliness. And this is what God, I think, is inviting us into. So throughout the Old Testament, we see that the invitation to treat others uh, with kindness and justice, um, or in other words, neighborliness, is uh, commanded in the Torah, in the Old Testament. But in this parable, it's dramatized. So what Jesus is doing is he's basically taking the Old Testament command and he's putting into this like story right and this is how jesus wants for us to understand he to think about all of this so um can you go to the next slide i just had one other thing that it's not in my notes but as i was thinking about this that god summons his people to a posture of neighborliness and yet throughout the story of the bible tribalism is ultimately what they consistently drift toward so for example in the book of leviticus chapter 19 uh frequently god actually repeats here's how you should think about your neighbor how you should treat your neighbor and so all of this is reflective of the very character and the nature and the heart of God. That God is a, if you want to think of it this way, God is a good neighbor. God cares about the quote-unquote other. Um, and God invites his people, he summons his people to live in a way that's reflective of his character. But over and over and over again, we have the people of Israel going back into this sort of uh, tribalism. And I think this is exactly what's happening or setting the stage in that dialogue or conversation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders is that he's identifying the fact that even in his own day, this, there was a set of tribalism that took place. I don't think it's any like random act that Jesus chose to be part of the characters, uh, the list of characters that he chooses. So on the one hand, to kind of put it in a category, he selects religious leaders, uh, a priest and a Levite. These are people that kind of embodied the religious matrix of uh Jerusalem, or uh, those that lived in Jerusalem and those that kind of lived according to the ways of Yahweh God. Um, but then on the flip side of that, he uses uh, another character that he just simply identifies as a Samaritan, which, again, um, we've pointed out before on several occasions. In fact, if you want to look at the last chapter, just kind of by way of a side marginal note, um, Jesus actually goes into the region of Samaria, and he engages in ministry. It's kind of like the latter part of the book, uh, or uh, chapter 9 of uh, book of Luke. And within that context, uh, the Samaritans are not very hospitable to Jesus and his community. And Jesus, it's that passage when his disciples are like, Jesus, what should we do? Should we call down fire from heaven just like Elijah and kill them all? And she's like, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. They're ready to kill those that are inhospitable to them. Jesus is ready to interweave the Samaritan as the hero into his next parable. Right? So again, Jesus' values are radically different than the values of even those that are the most ardent disciples of Jesus. So that should cause each one of us to just step back a little bit and to take a real close heart check. How, really, how neighborly are you and I really? I didn't say how much you love God, how much are you devoted to his ways, but really how neighborly are you? That's, that's the question. It's, it's painful, to be honest with you, because I think if we are truly uh, in, a, in a moment of transparency, I, I think we would all realize we all fall short to very large uh, degrees in this. But um, what ends up happening is we become just like the people of Israel. We'll re-degenerate into a tribalism. In other words, we create our little sects. We create our little groups. We create our little tribes, ones that we're devoted to. And, you know, I, I think in the modern day psychological way of describing this uh, or a sociological way of describing this, uh, we would term it as, as group identity. What group do you belong to? What group do you belong to? Because whatever group you belong to, that's the group you remain loyal to. 
in any other group that is not part of that group identity uh, is either a a potential oppressor to your group, uh, in other words, your enemy, or somebody that's outside of your groups that should be at least viewed with uh, suspicion. Uh, and I think what Jesus is doing is he's summoning us to live in an entirely different way. That doesn't simply uh, reduce everybody down to a tribe in which they are loyal to or disloyal to or one that you will accept or one that you will de- demonize, but to think about things in a very radically different way. So the Samaritan character. We, we know based upon historical context that Samaritans were basically viewed by Jews, good Jews especially, uh, Orthodox Jews, as being either half-breeds and or heretics. Half-breeds and heretics. Meaning these were the guys that didn't necessarily get the worship of God accurate. Um, they they kind of failed in the realm of worshiping God rightly. And uh, so the Jews actually had a lot of uh, prejudice towards them. They did not like them. They viewed them with great contempt. And it's, it's ironic that when in the story that Jesus actually uses a Samaritan as the character that depicts true neighborliness. That this would be, come as a shock. Uh, modern day example would be like I'd already kind of given. Um, let's say, for example, you have uh, some degree of a loyalty to more of a, uh, a, a liberal perspective or pro- progressive perspective of things. Um, you perhaps would then view someone that's on the right or someone that's a Trump supporter or someone that might be read in that perspective and view them with a degree of contempt. Uh, if, if Jesus were to be saying this parable today, he would probably use in, in the context of your life, um, you know, someone from like the, the yeah, I don't know, like, Kentucky, um, that drives a really big, loud, nasty, like very non-environmentally friendly vehicle. It's not a Prius and it's very loud and obnoxious and it just breathes all sorts of bad exhaust. He'd probably use that guy to say, this guy, this is the one. Uh, he's got a Confederate flag. Like you get the idea. That's the guy that's the hero of the story. It would shock you. But we can also use the same analogy on the flip side as well. Let's say, for example, you are kind of that, that right-wing type of a thinking person. And then Jesus would left, lift up maybe someone in the context of a parable, someone that would, would be on the exact opposite of your perspective to say, this is what it looks like for someone to be. This is the degree to which it would be. Or if you lived in Syria and you were a follower of Jesus, uh, it would be like Jesus telling the story in that modern-day maybe 2014-ish era, to say, I want to tell you a story about a good Samaritan. And the good Samaritan in this particular context happens to be an ISIS fighter. It's shocking. It's intended to shock you. It's intended to cause you to step back and ask the bigger question, um, what does it really mean for me to live in a way uh, with a, 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 that's consistent with the heart of God? So that being said, one last thing I'll say, and then we'll just kind of look at some aspects of this, is... Um, the religious leaders kind of point out for us uh, a deep devotion to, to loving God. Um, in fact, most Bible scholars uh, would, would look at the fact that maybe one of the reasons why they actually avoided that seemingly dead body, because they weren't sure. They, it was half beaten, half left for dead, right? That as they're walking in the road, uh, the assumption is that they are probably going up the Jericho Road, which takes you directly up into the region of Jerusalem. And if that being the case, meant that these guys are probably going to work, right? Where's work? It's the temple. Meaning their job for the day is to go offer sacrifices before God. And if you know that good Jews, especially those that kind of work for God, they're on the payroll, they're, they're, they need to keep themselves clean, right? Uh, pure. And as they're walking along the road, if they were to touch a dead body, what happens to a good Jew who is ceremonially clean, who touches a dead body, means he's impure now. So as they're walking up, they're thinking about worshiping God, devotion to God. But at the same time, here's an, a human being who bears the image of God, 
that is lying half dead on the road. And so they avoid that person that is apparently uh, a potential means to uh, make them impure so that they can remain pure before God. That, that seems to be what's happening here. But here's the point I think Jesus is saying, is that the big E on the eye chart that I don't want you all to miss is that to claim to love God and yet despise or have contempt or in, in, even in a passive way to ignore the pain of another human being that bears the image of God is actually not to love God. And it's to miss the mark. And it's to maybe reveal fractures in our gospel good news fluency. So I'm going to read a couple quotes, and we'll just jump into some final thoughts. Uh, listen to a few things. Uh, next uh, slide. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said this. He says, we do not love our neighbors because they are our friends. Instead, we love them because God loves them, regardless of our differences. John Calvin went on to say, there are, uh, mutual, uh, there are mutual obligation. There is a mutual obligation between all men. Mankind is knit together with a holy not. And then Soren Kierkegaard said this, that neighbor is what philosophers would call, quote unquote, the other. The other. Someone that is within close proximity to you, that would be a friend. A neighbor perhaps might not necessarily be a friend. In fact, they might even be an enemy. They might not be someone that you would necessarily sit down and, you know, have Taco Tuesday with, right? Uh, they might not even be necessarily someone that you would invite into your household because, you know, they're, you're not close, um, they would be, quote-unquote, the other. But according to this parable that Jesus wants us to think how we are to love our neighbor or the other. So with that being said, I want to jump into a few different ways that we see that biblical neighborliness and or love, uh, that's this outworking of righteousness and justice, I think what it looks like, what it involves. And we'll just go through these as we kind of look at the passage one more time, just kind of dissect it, and we'll wrap up. Um, I think what biblical neighborliness ultimately involves is, number one, open eyes. Open eyes. Did you notice that in the passage? Uh, Take a look at this real quick. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 31 says this. The priest, when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So he saw him, but he didn't really see him. Right? He saw him visually, but he really didn't see him. He didn't see the pain and the grief and the horror that uh, had had bound him. Um, So therefore... He went about his, his priestly duties, which really weren't priestly at all. Um, we see the Levite, when he saw him, again, the word saw, he saw him, he passed also on the other side. And then the Samaritan, uh, we're told that when he saw him, something triggered inside of him that was different. Rather than thinking about himself or thinking about his, you know, the rest of his day or whatever his ob- ob- obligations are for that day, he immediately has compassion on him. So this is really important because, again, when we're talking about the subject matter of, like, uh, justice in our culture and people that have been hurting or systematically brutalized or alienated or shoved off in the margins, no matter who they are, no matter what color skin they have, no matter what type of human beings or life that they have come from, what, what, we're, what we are hopefully going through as a church family is asking the bigger question, what is God asking of us? How is he inviting us to live in such a way that embodies the life of Jesus. And I think, first of all, it involves being able to see and then have compassion, which we'll look at in just a moment. So we see that all three of these people physically saw this critically wounded man, but it was only the Samaritan that looked up and stopped ultimately to help. So another way to think of this is that before we can even begin to think about meeting the needs or being a voice of compassion or showing mercy to other people, we, we've got to be aware of those needs. We've got to be aware of those needs. Uh, I think that involves asking questions, reading history, 
Uh, I know for me, over this past summer, I took a radical deep dive just because, again, just like you, I've, I've watched uh, all sorts of racial unrest uh, sweep across not only America and parts of the world, uh, on the central coast, that I've, I've really wanted to understand what is the black experience or a person of color's experience in America. This is the nation I live in, right? This is, this is where I call home. It's where I reside. It's not ultimately my home. My home is, is in Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, as a good citizen, I want to know where are those places of pain and grief. And again, without going into all sorts of like background or backstory, what I would just suggest is that just pick up a good history book. I mean, there's a lot of great history books about even the role of Christianity in America. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Mark Knowles or a guy named Thomas Oden. These guys write extensively just on history alone. And I, I would highly recommend just do a deep dive in, in history of Christianity in America. And, and that alone will show you this really complex and in some cases distorted uh, relationship that Christianity has been very clear from the very, very beginning. That Christianity um, has played a very damning role in racial tensions in America. But it's also, simultaneously, played a very significant role in bringing people out of those places of being thrown off into the margins. And so I would highly recommend, and one of the ways in which we, be, as, this, as, this, as we grow, and again, I'm a white male Christian. I never grew up having to worry about what happens when I get behind a wheel in my car. I've never grown up having to worry about if I go into a liquor store, do I have to worry about being tracked or watched or pulled over or some of these other elements that can sometimes play into other people's experiences. And all I'm simply saying, I'm not trying to weave into any other narrative other than to say what is helpful for us as far as of Jesus, who truly want to be those that embody the compassion of Christ, is it's important for us to really see and then have compassion. And that involves this process of sitting down. And look, I'll even throw, go so far as to say, if you want to know what it's like to be a, a, a policeman, sit down and talk with a cop. Talk with a cop's wife. Ask them. It's not always the easiest way. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of uh, uh, fear that oftentimes can play into that. So again, this is part of the process of learning how to have compassion for other people, seeing, it begins by seeing, observing, asking questions, doing some research, doing some history, taking deep dives in other people's storylines, and then beginning to let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts, a different heart, than maybe the one that might be more prone or wired by default towards um, non-compassion. Which leads me to the sec- second thing. That number one, biblical neighborliness involves love. Uh, uh, or, sorry, biblical neighborliness, neighborliness involves open eyes. Secondly, it involves open hearts. And I would just describe it this way. It's compassion. Compassion. The word compassion literally means with suffering. Someone that is able to come alongside, that as you learn their story, you're able to actually have compassion. And I'll break this down in just as simple, simple, uh, simple terms as I can. Let's say, for example, in a marriage. And there's a, there's a problem or a challenge, or a hardship, or something takes place in that marriage, or something uh, painful happens. And let's say, for example, the wife gets her feelings hurt. Imagine if a husband comes home and is like, what's wrong? You don't seem happy. And she begins to describe, and he gets defensive. And then rather than having a compassionate heart and listening, he just says, get over it. Let's go to dinner and have a good evening. Okay, so just because he laid down the law and said, get over it, let's go have a good evening. Did that bring resolve and reconciliation? And if you said yes, it's because you're not married. If you said no, then that's correct. It did not bring reconciliation. All it did is it stuffed that grief and pain down. 
it doesn't bring resolve. What, in order to be able to bring resolve, you've got to listen. Like, well, what, what did I do that caused pain? I want to know. I truly want to know. I want to understand. Because if there's anything I can do to make it better by way of apologizing or acting in a different way in the future, I want to know how to do that because I am deeply committed to you. You are deeply committed to me and living out the way of Jesus in our lives, in our marriage together. That begins to lead to a path because that allows for this proper fertile ter- uh, uh, terrain to create compassion in another person's heart towards another person. So that's what we see here. Number one, open eyes. Number two, open hearts. Number three, open hands. We see that this a Samaritan did not just simply feel sorry, but he actually enters into the suffering. He uses his hands to pick up this guy, to put him on his on his uh, you know, beast of burden, whatever it is, to take him to the inn. So I would imagine uh, this guy has been bruised and bloodied and he's filthy and dirty. And yet in this context, this Samaritan, who in this context of the story is the hero of the story, I would imagine his, his you know, garments and clothing are all soiled and dirty. But that's what he's doing. He's using his hands as a means of helping this other person. Number four, we see that he also has an open wallet. He actually uses his money to spend. Uh, and if you want to think of it this way, that this is generosity with wealth. And the second, uh, next one is generosity with one's time, but focus on generosity with one's wealth. So if we just simply claim that someone uh, has uh, kindness or um, neighborliness towards another person, but they're never really willing to even open up their own pocketbook to maybe help out someone that they know is in need. Now, again, I realize some of us might not feel like we have a whole lot of money, but this is where, like, it comes to, like, follow Jesus. There's, if God's inviting us to give something that we have to somebody else, again, this takes a process of discernment and prayerfulness. It doesn't mean that every single person on the street that's asking for money needs to be the person that's going to be a recipient of your money. But again, this process of learning to have compassion, seeing other people's grief and pain, and being able to step into it, in one particular case, is by using generosity of one's wealth. That's exactly what we see this guy does. And then lastly, we see an open schedule, which is really generosity of one's time. If you really want to think about it this way, the greatest, most um, valuable thing that you and I have, actually, even more valuable than even our own money, because it's, it's, in some ways it's actually, it can be easier to say, you know, I'll just give a deep need 20 bucks, but I won't give them any time. In some ways, we give money in exchange of time. But that's, that's why time is actually more valuable, way more valuable. And again, we, we see this Samaritan giving his time, his energy, to actually helping this guy out by being present with him in the midst of his suffering and pain. So la- the last thing I want first is to close on and think about is this is what it really means to be neighborly. I would even go so far as to say that if all human beings— rather than degenerating to tribalism, became neighborly, uh, we'd have a different world. I, I, I think that's what Jesus is saying. We'd have a different world in which we live in. Now, here becomes the problem. So what does it mean to become neighborly? Do we just not now all kind of make this like unified decision, like I'm going to be go, go out and be neighborly? Uh, good luck, because you'll probably fail by, these, by the end of this afternoon. All right? I'm not trying to put a downer on you, but the fact of the matter is, is that we will all fail. We will all fail at this over and over and over and over again because this is not about us somehow trying to like build merit for ourselves and our like, you know, uh, add like neighborly points to our credibility. But this is actually ultimately, I I think the end of this passage is to direct us to the person of of Jesus because last thing I want to look at is his final thought is that this kind of brings us to the final slide that we see that God actually embodies neighborliness himself in the person of Jesus. 
I mean, really everything that Jesus is describing in this uh, vivid parable is everything that he himself does. That God comes to people that are wholly other than him. Yes, we're human beings. Yes, we bear his image. But as far as morality and thinking and the way that we treat each other, we cannot be more unlike God. And yet God steps into this world. And as Eugene Peterson describes, he moves into the neighborhood and lives among us. I love that translation in the message because this image of God actually not moving someplace to another, you know, sector of the cosmos and then destroying planet Earth, God actually moves into the neighborhood on planet Earth, takes upon himself the form of a human being, physical, fleshly body. He suffers. He feels pain. He feels empathy, compassion. Uh, He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to be soiled. I mean, think about it. That's exactly what the cross is. It's Jesus. Uh, taking upon himself the deep shame, agony, pain, suffering that all human beings bear. Why? Because Jesus is deeply committed to reach out and to love the other. It's you and I. And I would suggest to the degree that you and I see this and embody this, which, by the way, this is the good news. This is the gospel. But to the degree that we embody and understand and absorb and are moved by this good news, the gospel, It has the capacity to reorient our hearts. It breaks down all stereotypes. It destroys and removes all boundaries, cultural boundaries, sociological boundaries, classist boundaries, racial boundaries, sexual boundaries, uh, gender boundaries, that we have this tendency to put up and then isolate and to create little classifications or groupings, and then we join whatever group that we are most comfortable with, and then we demonize whatever group we are not most comfortable with. The gospel reorients this entire landscape and says all human beings are horribly broken. And yet God has done something to do something about that brokenness to remake a brand new humanity. And that rewires our hearts. It causes us to look at other people that are very unlike us. And rather than look upon them with contempt and anger and bitterness, we step back with compassion because we know that this is how God treated us with compassion. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like in some ways to be in our shoes, to feel the various things that we face. And this is why we love Jesus so much, as he changes us to become new people. So the last thing I want to do in closing is to ask you to think about, uh, in terms of the characters, which one would you most resonate with? Would you resonate with the religious folks that are all about trying to follow Jesus and live in a way that's deeply consistent with Scripture. And yet, even in the midst of that, there is maybe a hard-heartedness in your heart towards others that are not like you that are maybe crying and hurting. And maybe to some degree you might be looking at it and saying their cries are not consistent with reality. Or you might have contempt or condemnation towards whatever type of pain or grief or suffering that they're going through. But you're trying to live in a way that's consistent with God? Or would you maybe identify with the suffering man who's beaten up, bruised, kind of on the side of the road, marginalized, forgotten, waiting, longing, hoping somebody would notice you? Or would you identify maybe with the Samaritan, this uh, hero of the story, per se, that is really at least trying to live in a way that's uh, alignment with compassion? and treating others with dignity, value, and respect. 
um, I think probably all of us, to some degree, we would identify with religious folks that are have a certain idea or ideology as to what morality should look like, and yet there's a tendency for us. Now, again, I, I think there's secular versions of this as well, people that are really trying hard to live according to a secular version of morality, and yet at the same time are othering other people and looking at others with a form of contempt. And this is where the gospel overrides all of that with a whole new landscape, a whole new world for us to live into. So as we finish, and as we go to the table, and we eat the bread and drink the cup, I'm going to invite you all, why don't we all stand as we uh, wrap this up, I'll have the worship team come on up. Um, we have some uh, leaders that would be happy to hand out to you guys some uh, the elements as we partake together of communion. Again, if you feel uncomfortable taking communion, um, then let them go ahead and pass by if you would like to partake with us. Uh, scripture teaches that uh, each time we partake of the communion together, we do this in memory of Jesus. We do this in a way of reminding ourselves of who Christ is and what he's doing in this world so that we could then represent him in the bigger, broader community around us. So what I want to do right now as we begin to just worship, I'm going to invite you, maybe just bow your heads, close your eyes if you'd like, and just begin to consider and think about maybe what are the areas in your life that you just need to confess before God? What are the areas in which uh, we need to repent from? Martin Luther, the reformer, said that the whole of the Christian experience is one of repentance. We, we never outlive repentance. We never get to a place where it's like, I don't need to repent anymore. We always need to recognize there are things that maybe we need to own. Hardness of heart, sinful proclivities, actions that betray maybe even our intentions. We have a good intention to do something right, but our actions are ones that are destructive to other people. Just confess those things before the Lord. Ask Him to wash you, cleanse you. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. And you're still thinking about the claims of Jesus. Who Jesus really is. And maybe this morning, something just clicked that says, you need a Savior more than anything. And if that's you, again, just in your own heart, just in whatever language or terminology or words that you have, just before this God that loves you, confess to him your unbelief, your sin. And just say, God, I want to I want to trust you. I want to be loyal to you because you were loyal to me even when I was disloyal. And as you confess those sins, I have the great joy just as a representative of pastor in the church that Jesus is building to just declare to you you are forgiven not because I said so but because First John for example says if we confess our sin to him he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness and make us new you are washed and cleansed so let's let's sing together and then as soon as we're done we'll partake of communion